new life. I can tell you, I've been waiting a long time to say those words, but let me tell you, welcome back. New life. Man. I'll just tell you, it feels good to be back in this place worshiping together. And last night, it, was, it felt just as good. I mean, we were together and uh, people came out and just, it, was, it was just wonderful. And if this is your very first time to ever be in this building, maybe I know that we've connected with a lot of people throughout the last four and a half months. And if that's you and you're here today, then let me extend a very special welcome to you. In fact, all of you, the New Life family, if, let's give these people a round of applause that are here. They're for the very first time. You know, the last time that we met in this room for worship, if you can believe it or not, was March 14th. March 14th. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that it would take us 141 days to get back. Well, I guess 142 days now, 141 last night. 142 days before we're in here again worshiping. But here we are, and praise God. You know, I'm confident that in the years that follow, there will be plenty of articles and lots of books written about this season, this chapter in world history, and also this chapter in church history. And all of these things that will be written about this time will basically address this one question. And the question is, what lessons did we learn from all of this? And I'm confident that those will be helpful on many levels, that we're going to learn a lot when we look back. Because don't you know, when you look back in time, it's usually looked back with 2020 vision. We look backwards with more clarity, don't we, than we look forward sometimes? But we're not there yet. We are still living right now in this monumentous moment in time. This is the season of COVID-19. And for me personally, the question that I think we should be wrestling with more than anything else is this. How should Christians be living out our faith during this historic moment in history? And in fact, that's what this sermon series is really all about that I've simply called COVID and the Christian. You know, when you look back on this season, you know, years from now, when you look back, what do you want to be able to look back on and, and, and be proud of? What do you want to look back on and say, yes, that was good? Is it uh, your unwavering faith? Do you want to look back on this season and say, not once did I ever waver in my belief in Jesus? Not once did I ever, uh, you know, change what I was believing because of what was happening? Do you want to be able to look back and say that? Do you want to be able to look back and say, you know what, I am really proud of my steadfast resolve. Not once did I ever question if God was in control or not. The coronavirus made me question many things, but not that God was in control. Do you want to look back on this time and maybe say, you know what, no matter what, I stayed as Christ-like as I knew how to be. The coronavirus did not rob me of my Christ-likeness. And I'm going to look back on this season and say, you know what, Jesus still reigned in my life. What are the things that you want to look back on and say, that's what I'm really proud of. You know, last week we were in the book of First Peter, and although this is not a series through the book of First Peter, I would like to ask you to go back to First Peter again. So if you got your Bibles, please go ahead and turn back to First Peter. And like I shared with you last week, I love the book of First Peter simply because it is just so practical. Peter was writing to Christians who really weren't all that different than you and me. 
They were Christians who at the time of Peter's writing were enduring some very difficult days, extremely difficult days. And no, let's be clear, their difficulty had nothing to do with a worldwide virus outbreak. Okay, are we on the same page? No, their difficulty was not that, but it was something that caused them to suffer. And what Peter shares with them about their difficulties and how they should be responding to those difficulties as followers of Jesus, well, that speaks volumes to us today. I do believe, I'm not going to, but I do believe that we could rename the book of 1 Peter right now. We're not going to, but I think we could. And you know what I would call 1 Peter right now? I would call it the Christian's Manual for Enduring COVID with Your Faith Intact. That's the name of this book. That's because it's just so, so practical. And that's why I love First Peter. I mean, I think it was written for us in this time, in this season that we are in as a church. Now, I would strongly encourage you, just like I did last week, spend some time with First Peter this week. If you haven't read it yet, just take a few minutes. It won't take you very long. Just sit down and read it from start to finish. And when you do, you're gonna notice several themes begin to emerge coming out of what Peter is writing. And what I mean by theme, you're like, oh, so that's what he's saying. Oh, I get it. That's what he's trying to communicate. There's some themes. And there's this one really huge theme that becomes very clear in the text that we're gonna be reading today. And the theme is this, Christians should live exceptional lives in the midst of suffering because such behavior brings glory to God. This is a very clear theme in his writings, that Christians should live exceptional lives in the midst of suffering because such suffering brings glory to God. That, my friends, is also how I feel about these strange days that we are living in. The word of God here in First Peter, it cries out to us today that we too, church, should be living exceptional lives as followers of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of a worldwide virus outbreak that has turned our world upside down, has messed with our lives, messed with our schedules, messed with our preferences, messed with everything going on in our world today. But through that, we live exceptional lives. Why? Because that kind of life, that kind of behavior, brings glory to God. Now, I would love for you to look at verse 11 of chapter two. And I, let's just focus for a few minutes on what, on what Peter is writing to the church going through this very difficult season. He says this, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Some of your translations may say aliens and strangers. And he's not talking about Martians. He's talking about this mentality that you need to see yourself as somebody who's not from around here that our citizenship is in heaven. And because we have planted roots in heaven, our time on earth is like visiting a foreign country. We're just passing through. We're an alien. We are a stranger. We are an exile on earth. And he said, that's how you should see yourself. So he says, dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners, as aliens, as people who are not from around these parts, who have your citizenship in heaven, let me encourage you to do this. Abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. And then he says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
Now, if you're paying attention, you'll see this, that Peter flat out lays down this challenge to the church. And that challenge is this, live good lives. And not just because it's the right thing to do, but live good lives because God wants to use your good life to bring about something even better, something that you probably can't even see or imagine. And if we could climb into the shoes of the recipients of Peter's letter way back in the first century, you would see that they are living with hardships all around them, mistreatment, mockery, and discrimination. Well, those are just a few of the hardships that these Christians were living through because of their faith in Jesus. And don't think for a second that there weren't some people in the church back then who didn't want to you know, retaliate in some way, who didn't want to lash out, who didn't want to, to fight back, who didn't want to say things that made other people feel stupid for once. The reason I know that's true is because they're just like us, they're people. And we don't like it when people say things against us negatively. We wanna fight back. We... But Peter's like this, is you guys, listen, here's what I want you to do, church. Just live an exemplary life, that's it. Why? Because even the pagans, now a pagan, that just means somebody who believes differently than you, shares a completely different set of values and beliefs. It says, if you live this exemplary life that even people who think differently, believe differently, maybe even those that wanna mistreat you because they believe differently, if you live a good life, you leave the door open for God to do something good in their life. This is Peter, he's calling the church, he's calling us to live our lives every single day with the end in mind, to live every day with a bigger picture at hand. That the way that we live and we choose to live in obedience to God, it has a greater purpose. Like God is using my life and my good life and my obedient life as a way to get the attention of even other people right now that don't believe. And it's not just about me. It's about what God is doing in me and what God is doing through me. Friends, I think that's what Peter's trying to say. Now, a big concern of mine when all this COVID-19 stuff started raining down on us was how Christians are gonna respond to all these incredible hardships. Would the church, would Christians respond in a way that reflected glory and honor back to God? Or would we respond to all of this in a way that made the church look ugly and hypocritical? Would an unbelieving world be impressed by how Christians have conducted themselves throughout the entirety of this difficult season to the point that they too may want to consider the things that we believe? Or would the unbelieving world get a real bitter taste in their mouth by how Christians have conducted themselves through this trying season? Perhaps even being pushed farther away from the Lord and from being open to what the Bible teaches just because of what they observed from Christians. And maybe that's why First Peter resonates so much with me is because it's so practical to what we're dealing with because Peter's talking about these exact same things. And, and something I tend to do when I study scripture is I try to paraphrase put into my own words what Peter is trying to say. And so I put a paraphrase on what Peter is teaching. And I think the paraphrase goes like this. He's like saying, hey guys, guys, listen, listen, listen. The world's watching you. 
Even people who completely disagree with you and your faith in God, they are watching you. And because they are watching you, church, you've got to live in such a way that they may too want to believe like you one day, even if they can't see it right now. Because the way you behave and the words that you choose and how you choose to use those words and how you choose to live out your everyday life, well, all of that combined can have a greater impact on the kingdom and what God is doing in the world than you'll ever know. I think one area that every single one of us needs to ask ourselves is this, one area is are we behaving ourselves in a Christ-like way when it comes to social media? Are we behaving in a Christ-like way when it comes to social media? This platform that gives us access to hundreds or thousands, even millions of people who get a little peek into your life, are we behaving in a Christ-like way? Because you know, you can speak to people with the voice of an angel in person and five minutes later, behave more like a venomous snake behind your computer or smartphone. Church, let me challenge you with something today. The next time that you post or share something on any social media platform, why don't you ask this question before you post it? And the question is this, is what I'm about to post and the tone that I take in posting it, could any of it in any way, shape, or form cause somebody who reads it from me to think less of Jesus and his bride, which is the church? Or this, hey, this point that I have to make, will it cause somebody to want nothing to do with Jesus? I'm not a historian by any means, but uh, I do enjoy reading up on learning about American history. Anybody in here like to read up on American history? I really do. Um, I came across uh, this story uh, here recently of a Native American um, named Red Jacket, and I've never heard of this Native American before. Anybody else heard of Red Jacket before? Is that a new name to you? It was brand new to me. Red Jacket was born in 1750, and the reason he is remembered is because after the Revolutionary War, he played a very prominent role in helping the new United States negotiate with the Native Americans in America. And he was involved in a number of treaties and negotiations, and so much so that George Washington in 1792 presented Red Jacket with a peace medal. And this peace medal, he, you could wear it around your neck, and it was about this big, and, and it had a picture engraved of George Washington shaking hands with Red Jacket. And it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing gift from the president, or from George Washington, one of our founding fathers. If you want to ever see this peace medal, it's actually on display at the Buffalo History Museum. You can go see it there if you're interested at all. Fast forward a little bit. In 1805, there was a number of Indian chiefs and warriors who met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York, and they met together to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a missionary by the name of Jacob Cram. He was from the Boston Missionary Society, and as I understand what was happening, Mr. Cram had reached out to the Native Americans, and he was seeking their permission and their blessing to do missionary work among the tribes. And the tribes that Red Jacket spoke for. And so they all decided to meet together and they said, well, let's hear you out. Let's hear what this is all about. 
And after the Christian message was given and the presentation was made and the requests were made, this is also something Red Jacket is very famous for. If you do a little research on his history, it was his response to Mr. Cram. And there's a lot of things said, but the part that really stands out to me, what I want to share with you today, is that Red Jacket said this, brother, we are told this, that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them first. If we find that it does them good and it makes them honest and less opposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. You know what was true in Peter's day? And what was true in Red Jacket's day is the same thing that is true in our day. As Christians, we are called to live such good lives, even among people who don't like us and don't believe the same we do and are standing opposed to our faith and want to even maybe harm us. That we are to live such good lives that they too may see our good deeds and really the reflection of faith through our lives that they too may say, you know what? Maybe we should consider this too. That's the challenge that Peter lays at our feet. And we're like, okay, I can do that. Because I'm, I'm a good person. And I'm nice to people. And I'm not mean on social media. And I can, I, you know what? I can be nice. I, I can certainly be nice. And then Peter drops on us in the very next verse, this one word that is like the hardest word for Christians to obey. Go ahead and look at verse 13, and you'll see the word I'm talking about. Look at the very first word in verse 13. What's it say? Submit. I hate that word. Submit. Oh, I can be nice, but you want me to submit too? Now, we're not going to read everything that, that Peter wrote today about it because he'll spend the rest of chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3 kind of giving examples of what this is all about. But uh, I think we could sum it up this way. Submission is the key ingredient that enables a Christian to live a good life among the ungodly. We're not going to read everything he said, but I'm just summing it up for you. Submission, that word right there, submission, and everything that comes with it, well, that right there is the key ingredient that enables a Christian to live a good life among the ungodly. It's not just about being nice. It's not just about saying all the right words at all the right times. It's about living a truly submissive life because the good life and the submissive life, according to Peter and others in the New Testament, well, they seem to go hand in hand in helping develop what is God's bigger picture in the world. And if you've never read this before, if you're coming at 1 Peter for the very first time in your life, you may be just a little bit surprised at the very first example that Peter chooses to apply this word submission Two, how do you live an exceptional life that brings glory to God even in the midst of suffering? Well, Peter tells you how. Look at verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, 
You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. And I am just gonna give you a couple seconds for that to sink in. Because some of you are reading that for the very first time and you just read this. Submit to human authorities. Honor the emperor. This is just a guess, but I would imagine that when Peter sent these letters out to all the churches and all these letters were meant to be read publicly in their worship service, I would imagine that there was at least a few Christians who were probably like, hmm, Peter must be out of his mind. Seriously, Peter must be out of his mind. You can't be serious. Stop reading. We gotta deal with this. This this can't be right. Is Peter saying that that we are to to be submissive to the very authorities who are making our lives terrible? Is that what he's saying? And there might be a few of them saying, wait a minute, is, is this Peter talking about all that Jesus stuff he's told us about? You know, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, don't repay evil with evil. Is this the stuff that Peter's talking about? You want us to submit to the emperor and all the officials and all the rules and so forth. Did we read that correctly? And the reason I speculate that there were some people in the church that maybe had that response to Jesus' words is because that's the same response that Christians today have to the exact same words. Submit yourself to every human authority. Does that mean, does Peter mean that we are to be submissive to every authority from the White House to the governor's mansion to the mayor's office to the POA? Is that what Peter is saying? And this may come as a surprise to you, but it's not just Peter who who said this. Paul, in the book of Romans, he says almost the exact same thing, only he says more of it. You don't have to turn there, but it'll be on the screen. But Romans chapter 13, verse one. If you've never read this, this is gonna be a real head scratcher for you. Paul said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, I think this is an important place where we should ask this very significant question because... Peter and Paul bring it up. The question is this, what does Peter and what does Paul mean by the word submit? That's a very important question in my world. 
What do they mean by the word submit? Let me ask you this question. You don't have to say anything back to me, but just think. What words, what images, what ideas come to your mind when you hear the word submit or submission? My guess is it's probably not positive because in our world today, we think of the word submit as weakness. We associate these two words together. Submissive persons are weak people. Well, that's how the world portrays it anyway. So we look at the word submission and we also kind of make this connection. Submission must mean you're on the losing side. You submitted to the other. You lost. That's how our world thinks about these things. Maybe some of you fellas in here, uh, maybe when I said submission, this image behind me came to mind. You're like, oh, I, I know what submission is. There's an image. Submission is in mixed martial arts when you get a guy in a chokehold and you force him to tap out because if he doesn't tap out, he's gonna be choked out and that's not good for him. That's submission. And you know what? In the world of mixed martial arts, yeah, that's submission. But that's not submission in the biblical sense. That's not how we should understand the word submit that Peter and Paul used it or how they used it. And this is one of those really helpful times in scripture where you go back and do a little bit of digging into the original language. In case you don't know, the New Testament was written mainly in Greek. And so our English Bible that you have on your lap is a English translation from the Greek. And so it's good sometimes to go back and to dig into what it that Greek word that we translate as submit, what does that mean? And I can just tell you that that word submit literally means this in the original language, to order oneself under. So the context of the passage, a literal reading would be to live according to governmental order. It's like Peter and Paul are saying to the church, listen, church, you all need to be good, law-abiding citizens. That's what he means. Just obey the law. Be good, law-abiding citizens. And, and Peter, what he does for us is he begins the name, the offices that we are to respect and to submit to their authority. He uses the word emperor. You could also replace that with king. That's how that would have been understood. I think in a democratic nation like ours, I think the president is also a good parallel to what he's talking about today. The governors are those who are under the supreme authority, if you will, who administer laws, execute justice. We could, in the line of leadership, we could also parallel that with, you know, um, our understanding of Congress, our state governors, our mayors, even our law enforcement officers, judges, police, and so forth. And I think it could also extend these human authorities all the way into your employer and your teachers and anyone else who finds himself in a position of authority in your life. Live in such a way that you are a a law-abiding citizen. You submit to the right authorities and, and you fall in line and Peter and Paul both say, this is good for you, church. It's good for you to be this way. I remember when I was growing up, my father, who was the most Christian man I ever knew, most humble Christian man I ever knew. I probably heard him say this seems like a hundred times and I've never forgotten it. He said, you know, Joe, as a Christian, we must respect the office of the president even if we struggle to respect the individual who is currently in that office. I've tried to remember that my entire life and let that play out in the authority figures 
over me. You respect the office, even if you have a hard time respecting the person filling that office. And don't you know, some years are easier than others to do that. Let me share with you my personal feelings about something that is related to our text. And I don't expect all of you in this room today to agree with me 100% or to line up exactly where I line up on. Um, but what I'm about to share with you is my opinion. And you have your opinion, I have my opinion, and, and that's perfectly okay. And I think there are times that it's perfectly fine that we just personally respect each other's opinions as just that, matters of opinion, and we just love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ anyway. So here's my opinion. As an ordained minister of the gospel and as the preacher here at New Life Christian Church, I have never once felt like it was my responsibility nor my burden to tell you how to vote or who you should vote for. I've never felt like it was my job to tell you what political party you should affiliate with. See, my job is to teach God's word, to pastor this flock, to help you grow in your walk with Christ, and to help lead this church arm in arm with the elders down the path that God is leading us to follow. I have always believed, the bottom of my heart, <clears throat> that if you are a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who is armed with God's word, who spends time on your knees talking to the Lord, then the Lord will guide you in all ways of thinking in this life, which includes politics. Now, I hope you know this. I hope you know that I am not shy in speaking out boldly about morality issues. And of course, morality issues and political issues often cross paths, don't they? I will speak out when it comes to things about pro-life because I'm unashamedly pro-life. I will speak out boldly when it comes to protecting biblical marriage between a man and a woman only. We know that's a political issue too. I will speak out when the Bible says, what the Bible says about the family and how we should operate within the family and how husbands should be and how wives should be and so forth. I'll speak out boldly on anything that clearly is in line with scripture, but I've just never seen the upside in a church trying to be a political voice. I'll just tell you how I feel. If I wanted to be a politician, I would run for office. But I'm really happy being the pastor at New Life Christian Church, okay? This is where I wanna be, and this is what I wanna do. This is what I feel God's called me to. My job, my calling, my passion is to help everybody that's a part of the New Life family interpret the world through a Christ-centered and a biblical lens to help you grow in your walk with Jesus and to partner with you in evangelizing our incredible community for Jesus. So when we come to Peter and Paul's teaching in scripture about being submissive to governing authorities, how should the church react to that? How should we interpret that today through a Christ-centered biblical lens? Especially when we might be feeling right now that our governing authorities aren't really what they should be. 
Or they may represent what we would interpret as the exact opposite of our faith convictions. Well, friends, when we approach this text, especially in light of everything that's going on in our world today, can I offer you some suggestions, some things to keep in mind as you prayerfully walk through this in your own walk with Jesus? And here's a few things I want you to remember. And the first one is this. They'll be on the screen behind me. They're also in the app. But God's church has always been able to live and grow in all kinds of political systems. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes. The church is 2,000 years old. And in that time, the church has not only survived, but the church has thrived in all kinds of governmental systems. The church has endured emperors and tyrants and dictators and kings and queens and communism and socialism and democracy. Do you know that the church, where it's the growing the fastest, is in countries that are the most oppressive governments? Countries where Christians are being persecuted the most, Christians who just get persecuted for discussing their faith out loud, those countries are where we are seeing an explosion of growth. Friends, if you think that the church's success or failure is riding on the, the elections on November 3rd, then I've got news for you. God is bigger than our political system and there's no single politician or political party who is a deciding factor in what God is doing with his church. Amen. There's not. Now, do I think that the November 3rd election is crucial? Yes, I do. Probably the most crucial one in my entire life. But the church's success or failure what God's will is and what he is doing is not gonna be decided on a singular vote in America. My faith is in a God who is over every authority known to man. Here's the second thing I think we should remember as we try to walk through Peter and Paul's teaching as Christians in today's culture. We need to remember the context of this teaching. It's so important we study God's word. Remember the context. Peter's instructing the church what? To do what? To live an exemplary life even in the midst of very hard times. Even when people want to ridicule you and harm you, they will be impressed by your good behavior. There is a bigger picture going on. Our actions have greater consequences than the punishments that might befall us. That's the context of this passage. So Peter challenged them to live good lives. Be submissive to governing authorities. Be good, law-abiding citizens. Why? Well, that brings me to the third thing that I want you to remember today. Because it's not about you. It's not about you. Showing respect, obeying the law, is ultimately not about any of us, really. It's about God. And let me show you why that's true. If you look back at verse 13, what's it say? Submit yourselves, why? What's it say? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, you behave in a certain way. Even if you massively disagree, it is not for your sake. It is for the Lord's sake, for what he is all about and about what he is doing. And friends, the biggest test of your faith is when you do something strictly based out of obedience to God. It's like, I don't wanna do it. 
I'd rather tell this guy off. I'd rather act this way. I would rather behave in such a way. But I won't because for the Lord's sake, I won't. If you look at verse 15, what's it say? For it is God's will. Now, friends, whenever you're studying scripture, if you come across verses that are so close together anywhere in the Bible that says, for the Lord's sake and for God's will, don't you think we should pay attention? Don't you think we should perk up just a little bit? Oh, this is for God's sake and this is God's will. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the, the ignorant talk of foolish people. I'm not very good at this sometimes. I would imagine none of us are experts at this. But I do try to live every single day of my life conscientious of the fact that the Lord might be doing something bigger than what I can see right in front of me right now. And he's probably up to things that I'll never know this side of heaven. That it's just God's will for me to live my life a certain way and he's gonna use that to impact somebody else. So in this case, the example Peter uses, it's not the only example, but it's the one we're looking at today. He says, submit to the governing authorities because God's gonna use your good law-abiding behavior to actually shut people up. Trust me, the Lord doesn't need our help in adding to the ignorant talk of foolish people in our world. I think we need to remember this too. Number four, a true Christian will submit themselves to the authority because he or she is, first of all, submitted to Christ. That's really the only way any of this works. 1 Peter 2.16 says this. Let's read it together. Live as free people. In other words, you're a free person. You're free in Christ. You have freedoms. You can exercise those freedoms. You can say, I obey God, nobody else. Live as free. But, what's he say next? Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, Live as God's slaves. That phrase there, live as God's slaves, is the whole essence of the conversation. God is the master. We are ultimately and first of all subjected to his authority. Above all, we are loyal to him. We are loyal to his authority over everything else. And somebody might say, Joe, hey, Joe, wait, 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 wait. Look around. Look at the condition of our society. We are farther away from God than we have ever been. Look at the laws that our government is passed. Look at the ones they are trying to get passed. Look at the direction that our country is going. We are on a path to a godless government. We are on a path to godless schools and godless workplaces. The church needs to speak up and fight back. And I would say, yeah, I agree. There's a lot of truth in that. You're not gonna find a whole lot of disagreement from me. But can we first wrestle with this question? Because I think this right here is a greater question that we should be wrestling with. And the question is, is our problem really a godless government or is our bigger problem a nation <clears throat> with compromised churches filled with half-hearted disciples. 
I don't preach politics. I've been very honest with you about that for all the reasons I've already said in this sermon. But I will blast a watered down, drifting church that has forgotten that God is their master, Christ is their king, the Bible is his word, and we are subject, first and all, to his will and his desires for our lives above everything else. I am far more concerned about a church that is okay with flying a pride flag than I am over an individual, the individual who sits in the Oval Office. I am far more disturbed by a Christian in name only than I am over whether or not your voter registration card says Republican or Democrat. I am more troubled by the preacher who stands before his congregation every single Sunday and waters down the word of God. I am more concerned about that than I am of any politician trying to redefine the Constitution of the United States. I am more bothered by a Christian who seems to have no sexual boundaries than I am of any city council trying to legalize any kind of hedonistic lifestyle. I am far more alarmed when Christians seem to be more concerned about wearing a mask than they are about their neighbor who right now is on a path to hell. I, I don't think that our biggest problem is governmental overreach. I think our biggest problem is Christians who've somehow forgotten that God is their master. Is it time for the church to stand up? Oh, you bet it is. If standing up means that we first surrender to the king. You see, this entire essence of what Peter and what Paul is teaching the church is that our greatest obligation is to live faithful Christian lives in among people and governments that hate us. That the way you live brings glory and honor to God. And the way you practice your faith opens doors for God to do other things. And it shows the world that you trust him more than anything else. It says that Christ is my king. God is my master. And he is ultimately in control. But there's another question that our text begs us to ask today. And the question is this. Is there ever a time when Christians should not follow what Peter and Paul say? Is there ever a time that we should break the law? Yes. Absolutely. And I'll tell you today, here is my line in the sand. If we are ever put in a position where we have to choose between obeying God or obeying man's law... If the choice comes down to that, then friends, always, 100% of the time, we're gonna obey God's law over man's law. Consider what happened in Acts chapter three and four. Peter and John, if you know the story, the church is very young. Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple to pray and they come across somebody that needs healing and so they heal the man. And this causes such a stir that all the governing leaders, they arrest Peter and John and they threaten them this way. Do not ever speak the name of Jesus again. And I love the response. The, the response comes from the very same person who wrote 1 Peter. You know what Peter said in verse, chapter four, verse 19 of Acts? That Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? 
You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So the very same apostle who's teaching us be good law-abiding citizens, submit to all human authorities, is the same one who earlier in his life, he looked at the leaders of his land and said, I'm gonna obey God, not you. Because we learn this is Peter's line in the sand. I will not break God's law because God is my master over you. Here's my opinion. I don't believe personally that in Arkansas we have reached that line. I personally don't feel like I, as your preacher, have been put in a position where I have to choose God over the government. But you know, not every preacher feels that way. Not every Christian feels that way. That's just how I feel. I've got friends of mine that preach in California. I can tell you they feel that way. Because you've been paying attention to the news, right now you're not allowed to meet as a church in California. Thank goodness for guys like John MacArthur who said, fooey on that rule, and 3,000 people showed up at church last Sunday. If you wanna hear a good sermon, um, John MacArthur's final 15 minutes of last week's sermon, pretty stinking good. Look at verse 17 of chapter two. What's he say? Look at the last five words. Fear God, honor the emperor. Which comes first? Fear God. Fear God, that comes first. You know, if, if what's going on in other places in our country and definitely in other places in the world, if they happen to us here, I think I, in fact, I know where I would land. But you know, here's the thing, friends, and I think this is the heart of what's being taught here in, in Peter and in Romans. But even if we have to practice what we might call civil disobedience or where we're putting God first and we're not gonna obey man's law, I still think the heart of this passage is do it in a respectful way. Not in an arrogant way. Not in a, you're an idiot way. I see some people on social media and I'm embarrassed for Jesus over them. I find it impossible, even ridiculous, based on what I know from Scripture, that even when we have to obey God's law over man, that, that our ridiculous behavior in doing so would ever bring people to Jesus. So it looks like this in real life. If there was ever a law passed that said, preaching the Bible is against the law, please know I would not stop preaching the Bible. If there was a law that was ever passed that said that all ministers must perform weddings for any couple that asked them, regardless of sex or gender, same sex, whatever, um, and if you refuse that, you'll go to jail. Please come visit me in jail. I, yeah. Sneak me in a burrito and a Diet Coke once in a while, would you? That would help. And I hope that, in all seriousness, if it ever came to that, that I would not be arrogant, divisive, or terrible acting in the process. But I would choose to obey God rather than man and still leave the door open for an angry world to maybe praise God one day.
Earlier in this sermon, I asked you this question. When it comes to the word submit, what images come to your mind? What pictures come to your mind? And You know, I think when Peter told these Christians to submit, I think this is the only image he really wanted them to see. I think he just wanted them to see Jesus on the cross. This is what submission really looks like. Jump down with me in the text in verse 21. We're almost done. Chapter two, verse 21, it says this. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's what Peter tells the church. He's like, church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn to be submissive. And I want you to make the connection that your submission is like Jesus' submission when he hung on the cross. Jesus suffered a great deal. They insulted him, he didn't retaliate. They punched him, he didn't punch back. They made fun of him, he stayed quiet. They crucified him, and he did not try to break free. Jesus is the ultimate example of submission. But Jesus wasn't just submissive for submission's sake. Not at all. There was great intention with this submission. His submission was a prerequisite to the resurrection. His submission was something that had to happen so that you and I could sit here in church today. It was with a purpose. And I think we need to understand, if we're gonna master the art, the heart of a submissive life, then we'll be more like Jesus than we've ever been. And I think more opportunities for what comes from it open up. We are submissive because something much greater is at stake. Boy, I tell you, I wish I could see all that God was doing with the coronavirus. Don't you you wish you could look off in the future about five years and just see what comes from all of this? But we can't. But we have God's word and we have his truths. Christians should live exceptional lives in the midst of suffering, in the midst of virus outbreaks, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of angry people, in the midst of of, of godless governments, in the midst of godless laws, in the midst, in the midst, in the midst, in the midst, in the midst. Christians should live exceptional lives in the midst of suffering. 